Good morning, church. Everyone doing okay? Great. Glad to hear that. It is good to be here. Very good to be here. I love the Old Testament, and I love reading it, and I had to think recently about why. And at least one reason why is that it's hard, and it's challenging, and it's a struggle to read the Old Testament. It's a struggle as a Christian to sort of intermingle that with my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, And there's hard things, and I have lots of questions myself, but I really enjoy struggling and asking the Lord to help me understand and applying it to my Christian life. So it's kind of a lifelong challenge, and the Lord is teaching us, teaching me how to um, deal with it. The Old Testament's very rich. It's rich in, let's say, genres. It's rich in the different ways that it teaches us. So to start off, you have a big story from Genesis to Esther, from creation until about 400 BC. And stories teach us in a certain way that's very powerful. But you also have Proverbs, short little sayings that teach us the ways of wisdom. Um, You also have psalms. What would the church be without psalms? Expanding the majesty of God and praising his name in the highs and lows of our lives. There's also prophecy. The prophets that stand up and speak the word of the Lord in a specific context to a sinful people and to the nations as a whole. Um, But today I want to focus on the stories. And I want to ask, I guess it's a rhetorical question because we're not in a classroom, but... What is one of the reasons that Christians should read stories from the Old Testament? Is it just a history lesson? No. 1 Corinthians 10.11 answers that question. 1 Corinthians 10.11 says, Now, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Our text today is 1 Kings 18 and 19. The story is about a man called Elijah, but the application is broader. The application is for us and learning how the Lord treats his servants and his children. We'll learn as much about the Lord as we will about a man named Elijah. Elijah lived in a region called Gilead. Gilead is east of the Jordan River on the forested slopes of a land that today is the country of Jordan. Anyway, there's a lot to like about Elijah. Like from the beginning of his introduction into the biblical story, we like him. So from chapter 17, it begins, he stands up and says, Thus says the Lord before whom I stand, there will be no dew or rain for three years. Boom. He gives the word of the Lord from the moment of introduction boldly. Why was the Lord doing this to his people, withholding rain for three years? There was a wicked king in the kingdom of Israel named Ahab. And Ahab married a Canaanite woman named Jezebel. And Jezebel introduced the cancer of idolatry into God's people. Naturally, the king and the queen opposed Elijah for his word and his message. And they wanted to stop him and get some rain to come to the land. So Elijah had to flee. And he fled east across the Jordan River to the modern country of Jordan. And you remember the story. He drank from a brook and was fed by ravens, completely trusting in the Lord there. Then that ran out, and he fled to what is today the modern country of Lebanon and was provided for by God 
by a miraculous amount of food and oil. And there was a widow there, and he provided for her. He even raised the widow's son from the dead. So all along, it's boldness, boldness, boldness. Obedience. Elijah's our example, even from the very beginning. But we know Elijah best from his contest or his confrontation with the prophets of Baal. And that's what we want to start with. This confrontation came at the end of three years of drought. The Lord told Elijah that he was going to end the drought and show mercy to his people. But first, the Lord wanted, wanted to teach his people. He wanted to force them to recognize their sin of idolatry. And Elijah was going to be God's spokesman to this rebellious people. Okay, so we're going to read parts of the story, starting in 1 Kings 18, 20. 18, 20, and 21. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. The fancy word for what's happening here is called syncretism. The people worshipped the Lord, Yahweh, but they also worshipped false gods. Baal, in this case, Baal. Elijah describes it here as limping between two opinions. Why does he say it's limping? Because there's only one true God, and we know you cannot serve two masters. But the people weren't ready to abandon the benefits of worshiping Baal and Yahweh at the same time. They were silenced when Elijah called them out. Why are you limping between two opinions? They were silent. And I think you know the story of how the contest worked. He said, okay, we're going to offer up burnt offerings to our God. You take a bowl and cut it up and arrange it as you please. And I'll take a bowl after you, cut it up and arrange it as they please. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. In other words, he is the true God. Is it Baal or is it the Lord? Um, so let's read the continuation of the story. Um, we're jumping to 25 and 26. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered. And they limped around the altar they had made. I like that last expression. They limped around the altar they had made. It's the same word used earlier. And I feel like the prophets are sort of symbolizing, in a figurative sense, what idol worship does to you. You're just pathetically limping around an altar, just as the people metaphorically were limping between two opinions. Idolatry is harmful. Syncretism is harmful. And we see it here in this pathetic picture of the Baal worshippers. Okay, now 27 through 29. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. 
And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. So throughout the story so far, Elijah has been very bold and confident. However, here on Mount Carmel, he goes even a step further and he mocks the prophets of Baal. Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey. Perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. So guys, I have to tell you, I spent like a lot of time studying this phrase, either he is musing or he is relieving himself. Now why did I do that? I even looked at like a nerdy scholarly article and followed it up with a word study. Why? Because I just really wanted to make sure, is Elijah actually saying, like, your God is relieving himself? Can it be? Um, and honestly, like, it's not totally clear. You study the original context. The Hebrew verb that he uses is incredibly rare and kind of weird. Um, so, sadly, like, I'm not totally sure. But at the very, very least, Elijah was certainly saying that your God is away right now. He's not here. Um, maybe Elijah was describing Baal as being away on some errand or some trip or some visit to his dad or his sisters or his lovers or something. We don't know. Or maybe he was saying Baal is away in the sense that he was squatting behind some trees with his pants down and busy, couldn't hear them. In either case, it is clear that Elijah was mocking Israel's so-called God. It's pretty sassy, isn't it? I love reading stuff like this. Okay, so notice how also the prophets harmed themselves in an attempt to get their God to pay attention. And this is a symbol of the harm that comes from worshiping other gods. And what was the result of all this bleeding and raving about limping around the altar? The phrase actually occurs twice in this paragraph. There was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. When it was finally Elijah's turn, he displayed yet another, took yet another step of confidence. He asked that many jars of water would be poured onto the altar of sacrifice. Think about it. This was a total waste of water, considering how precious water had become after three years of drought in a very dry region of the world. So after he had this done with four jugs of water once, he had it done twice, he had it done three times, probably annoying the young guys that had to pour it the whole time. So by the end, the top of the altar was soaked, the flesh of the animal was soaked, and it says there was water in the trench of the altar. Only then did Elijah pray to the Lord. And I love his prayer. It's in verses 36 and 37. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Elijah is all about the name of the Lord in this prayer. Earlier, interestingly, in verse 30, He had to repair the broken altar of the Lord. It looks as though the people had worshipped 
Yahweh there in the past, but it was destroyed. So he had to repair the broken altar of the Lord. But here, he is trying to repair the broken reputation of the Lord. God's name was not valued as it should. The people were not sanctifying or hallowing God's name. Even though that word referred to the Lord Yahweh in all of his majesty and perfection and grace and might. Um, Elijah wanted Israel to call upon the name of the Lord in truth and with their whole undivided heart. So this prayer is kind of like the beginning of the Lord's prayer. The Lord Jesus taught us to pray and he began with the phrase, hallowed be your name. May your name be sanctified. May people regard your name as holy as number one. And they weren't doing that. Okay, so what happens? Verses 38 and 39. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Notice the people's submission and their confession. They bowed and they said, The Lord, he is God. Now we need to unpack this a little bit. If you're kind of a language nerd, you might notice that the Lord, he is God is kind of a weird confession. That's kind of like saying, the brother, he is the man. The brother, he is the boy. The king, he is the human. Like, there's two titles. You're just saying two titles of one person. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Remember that the Lord is sort of a substitute word for the proper name of Israel's God. We like to say these days Yahweh, but where I teach, the the Christians there pronounce it Yahweh. And in the West, 200 years ago, we used to say the name Jehovah. So my point is, we don't actually know the precise form of the proper name of Israel's God. You know, if it's Jehovah, why did we change to Yahweh? If it's Yahweh, why did we change to Jehovah? We were either wrong in the past or we're wrong now, or maybe we're wrong on both accounts. Um, The name has been lost in its vowels, which is kind of weird. Um, Maybe it's Yahoo, maybe it's Yahwahoo, we don't know. Um, The important thing is it's a proper name. It's the one word in all of language, in all of you know, history that God has revealed and said, this points to me and me only. Don't tarnish it with anyone else, and it refers to me and my character. That is what the people are saying. Yahweh, he is God. He is the God. He is the only God. This is a powerful confession of faith. The God of Israel, Yahweh, he is the only God. In my opinion, this confession is the closest thing we have to a confession of true faith in the Old Testament. Just as we, as Christians, confess with our mouths, Jesus is the Lord, and we believe in him, we're saved. So too, the Old Testament believers confessed, the Lord, he is God, the only God, and they were saved, the beginning of true faith. Not only that, this confession was probably something very personal for the prophet. This confession resembles, in the original, the name of the prophet. When they fell on their faces, they said something like, Yahu, Hu HaElohim. Hu HaElohim. Now, Elijah's name in Hebrew is Eliyahu. Eliyahu. Yahu, Hu HaElohim. Yahu is maybe a shortened form of that proper name. So, um, Elijah's name means Yahweh is God. The Lord is God. People confess the Lord is God. My point in all this is, 
this moment of Israel's confession was probably quite a spiritual high for Elijah to hear that being said. Yes, Lord. They get it. They believe. And this is what my name reflects. It points to you. God used Elijah mightily to hack out the cancerous tumor of idolatry. Then Elijah ordered the death of Baal's 450 prophets. And after that, the Lord sent rain for the benefit of his people. And we read that account where eventually the rain comes and covers the land. One more thing to this story in verse 46. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Does that grab anyone? You need to know about Jezreel. Okay, Jezreel was a city 23 miles from Mount Carmel. I'm guessing. 23-ish miles from Mount Carmel. Elijah gathered up his garment to get ready to run and ran before Ahab to the city of Jezreel. Wow. In the power of the Spirit. I call this, this is Elijah's final act of bravado. And he shows the power of God running ahead of Ahab's chariot 23 miles. In summary, Elijah is the man. And as far as examples go, this is very positive. You want to be the man? Be like Elijah. He is the man. And you're thinking, it's been 17 minutes. Uh, I'm not done with the sermon, are you? Some of you would want that. Some of you would not. But you're just wondering, like, this is where the story ends, right? It's easy to end a sermon on this climax of victory. And it might even charge you up for the next week, for living in this world. But let's be honest. Our Christian lives aren't always so, so victorious, right? The Lord knows this. And he continues the story, and he continues his dealing with Elijah in the next chapter. So we got to keep reading this story to learn the complete lesson of how God treats his children. Chapter 19, 1 and 2. Remember, he's just done this mad dash in front of the chariot. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Okay, simplify. She used a lot of words. She invoked a curse on her gods. She's saying, Elijah, I am going to kill you going to kill you. When Elijah arrived at Jezebel's city called Jezreel, he was probably eager to see Jezebel taken out. He might have even wished that the fire of the Lord would fall on her, wipe her out, because she was the source of this idolatry. She was a Canaanite. She grew up worshiping Baal. She married into the royal family and spread that cancer. Well, her death would surely mean the end of Baal worship in the kingdom of Israel. So what's going to happen? 1 Kings 19.3 marks a sharp downturn in this story. Let's read verse 3. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. The queen's threat actually had a strong effect on Elijah. The bravery that had characterized him up to now melts away to fear, and he flees into the desert. 
Elijah preserved himself instead of facing up to Jezebel. And from this point on, Elijah's positive qualities that were so encouraging to us, they give way to some pretty nasty ways of thinking that we definitely should not imitate. Okay, 19.4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. Brothers and sisters, there's a lot of bitter emotion, sour emotion behind these words. It's clear that Elijah was totally worn out from his contest at Mount Carmel. It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life. And you know what? Often when we get to this point of exhaustion, we start to despair. We're not thinking rightly about the Lord or other people. So yeah, Elijah's fatigue was understandable. Imagine if you had to ascend the mountain, call down fire, face the people, run 23 miles to Jezreel, and then run for your life down to the desert. Um, The fatigue is understandable. However, we kind of need to open up his, his soul and study his mistaken thinking so that we can learn from it. Um, that's really important. And did you consider what he said, the reason that he felt this way? He didn't just say, God, I'm tired, take my life, I'm, I'm done. He gave a reason. It's really interesting. He says in verse 4, I am no better than my father's. Wait, wait, wait. This man of God wants God to end his life because he wasn't better than his father's? Really? Like, Elijah was totally despairing because he wasn't the best. Old Testament believer number one. The most faithful, the most effective servant of Yahweh in history. It's kind of childish, isn't it? This is not a healthy way to think about your walk with God. Of course, we don't have to be the best to serve the Lord. That's just self-centered, unrealistic, and competitive. There's no win in comparison. I'm no better than my father's. But also, what does this say about what Elijah was thinking about those who came before his fathers? Don't forget that Elijah's fathers included faithful believers like Abraham. Abraham did not have written scripture to guide him. He had the Lord who called him, and he obeyed and went. He waited for like 50 years to have a child. His wife was past childbearing age. God gives him the child and then says, take your child, offer him as a burnt offering, your only promised child. Slit his throat and light his body on fire. And he did it. He was obedient. I don't know how this is going to work, Lord. Maybe you'll raise him from the dead. I'm going first thing in the morning. Those are one of, he's one of Elijah's forefathers. Then there's Moses. Moses spoke to the Lord face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And he wasn't even afraid to sort of, you might say, get in God's face and intercede and say, no, you cannot destroy this people. Remember your covenant. Remember your revealed character. Have mercy on your people. Or King David, a man after God's own heart, 
who wrote a good chunk of the book of Psalms, led Israel in the true worship of the Lord. These are Elijah's fathers. Um, Did Elijah really aspire to be better than them? Did he really want the Lord to take his life because he wasn't better than them? What's with that? Did he think David was sort of compromising, but he, Elijah, was radical? Maybe he thought Moses was worldly, but he was spirit-filled. My brothers and sisters, let's make every effort to root out the spirit of selfishness, competition from our hearts. Let's learn from his example in a sort of negative way. Okay, continuing on, verses 5 through 8. Remember, he's in the desert, totally despairing. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. There's so much to say about this. First, notice the Lord's gentleness toward his despairing and childish servant. There's no rebuke or no mockery. Like, cut it out, you big baby. I told you so. Stop whining. Be quiet. No. He sends an angel to minister to him. And second, notice how he ministers to him. Sleep. Food. Not a birthday cake. You see the word cake? It's like a savory cake or bread. Sorry. And a jar of water. Sleep, food, and water. Listen, guys, there's a principle here. Sometimes the most spiritual thing you can do is to take a nap. Do I hear an amen? Um, Put this principle as a frontlet between your eyes. Write them on the doorposts of your house. Is this idea hard for you to accept? We are limited. Even with our modern medicine, our healthy diets, our machines, our devices, and our smartphones, God created us with limits on purpose. He created Adam and Eve without sin with limits. They were limited also. Notice what the angel said. The journey is too great for you. This is you. This is the journey. Sorry, man. You are limited. Generally speaking, we Americans overlook our limitations. We push ourselves too hard. We focus on tasks, efficiency, I can talk to you about my to-do lists. And we don't easily give it over. Trust the Lord to take care of our worries and to meet our needs while we rest. We're sacked out on the couch and he takes care of everything. We don't tend to do that. If you need more evidence for this principle, let's consider what the Lord Jesus said to his disciples after a hard day's work. I'm reading from Mark 6. 30 to 32. Here's the context of these verses. 
the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Notice what God incarnate valued for his followers. Personally, though, I find it hard to rest. Sometimes I don't even know how to rest, even with the presence of restful things around me. I go to my to-do list. I feel that I have to be productive. I have to get 40 hours in a week or something like that. Trusting in the Lord and resting is an attitude adjustment. It's a worldview change, and I'm not saying it's easy, but it will be so beneficial to keep ourselves from harm and maybe even protect us from the kind of burnout that Elijah is here experiencing. Anyway, in the strength of that, those two naps and that food and that water, Elijah traveled to Mount Sinai. Here it's called Mount Choreb. It's the same thing. Notice, he traveled 40 days, 40 nights. Let's read verse 9. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Okay, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai. Then he stayed in a cave. Let's call it a cleft in the rock. Stayed in a cleft in the rock on the mountain. Where have you heard this before? Moses was atop the same mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. The Lord put Moses in a rocky cleft, like a cave, when his glory passed by, and he proclaimed the meaning of his name. Also, one little thing. um, The Lord had covered Moses with his hand when his glory passed by, and then removed it when he saw his backside. You'll notice in verse 13, Elijah wraps his face up in a garment to go out and see God. Is it possible that Elijah was expecting the same kind of glorious appearance and personal powerful revelation. However, God did not meet Elijah's expectations. Now we see the second movement of the Lord's gentleness towards his zealous but burnt-out prophet. Again, there's no rebuke, no mockery. Why'd you come here for 40 days, man? I'm not going to give you anything. Cut it out. You're being selfish. You're being childish. Um, Why are you doing this? No, the Lord asks another question. What are you doing here, Elijah? This is one of the many times when the Lord chose to ask questions when dealing with individuals. You can make a little survey and see that the role of God's questions to sinning individuals is important, and there's a point to it. He doesn't ask them because he doesn't know. You have to teach me something that I don't know. But he truly wants to hear from his child, give that person an opportunity to share his heart. For example— After Adam and Eve clearly sin, the Lord asks, where are you? After Cain's sacrifice was not accepted by God, the Lord asked him, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? One of my favorites is when Jonah acts like a big baby and gets upset because the Ninevites actually repented and God actually showed compassion. He was ticked off and left and was angry. God asks him, 
do you do well to be angry? So gentle. Most people wouldn't do that to someone like Jonah, who's just being ridiculous. What's the point of these questions to Adam, Cain, Jonah, Elijah? Like a good father, the Lord doesn't strike his child out of anger, but he listens to him. He shepherds him. He trains him in the ways of righteousness. Brothers and sisters, the Lord is still like that today. He's not in heaven disappointed with you. He's not in heaven scowling at you or shaking his head. He loves you. Verse 10. What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Elijah came all this way, 40 days and 40 nights, to vent before God. And his words are kind of like the earlier words to the angel in the desert, but he adds a little more information. Notice he says, I, even I, only am left. This actually isn't true. Um, Later, God will reveal that he preserved a faithful remnant of 7,000 people in the kingdom of Israel who never worshipped Baal. Either Elijah didn't know this, or he was exaggerating in sort of a childish mood. I'm the only one left. And again, Elijah points out our human nature. This is the way we are. Sometimes we think of ourselves as too important, more highly than we ought. And the Lord has to directly but gently remind us that he is perfectly capable of destroying idolatry and turning back the hearts of his people without us or without any celebrity in the faith. He's got it covered. Verses 11 and 12. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Notice, the Lord's, the Lord was no longer in these mighty displays of power. Here's the meaning, I think, of what's going on. Sometimes the Lord's ways involve fire, fire from heaven. Do you want an example? How about the last chapter? The fire of the Lord fell and consumed The offering. The Lord was in the fire. He can be in earthquakes. He can be in these mighty, jarring events interceding into the world. Sometimes the Lord is in a still, small voice, a gentle breeze of the Spirit, a work that we can even barely perceive. He's working in the spirit world. The wind blows where it wills. You don't know where it comes from or where it's going so is one born of the Spirit. Things are happening in the spiritual world we don't see, but God is working. 
and his children need to accept this. The Father knows best his ways. His ways are far above our ways, which probably means they're unpredictable. I can't tell you always how God is going to treat you. It's going to be good, and it's going to be um, probably unpredictable. Elijah wanted the fire of the Lord to fall on Queen Jezebel and burn her up. He wanted the Lord to reveal something new at Mount Sinai. It didn't happen. In the next two verses is a repetition. The Lord asks Elijah the exact same question. What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah gives the same answer word for word, sort of pouting and explaining um, how he feels. So, verses 15 to 18. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Okay, Elijah has vented twice. I am the only one left. Your people are wiping us out. What does God say to this? You're right, Elijah. It's a good thing you fled from Queen Jezebel. Because you are the only faithful believer in the land. Very strategic move. No, that's sarcasm. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say, I'm sorry, Elijah, I've worked you too hard. He doesn't even say, thank you for your zeal. When Elijah says, I've been very zealous. No. Um, What does he do? The Lord gives Elijah his next mission. No preface, just go and anoint these people. Um, And it's clear from this mission that Elijah will not be the man to root out Baal worship in Israel. Now Jehu, that guy he's going to anoint, he'll do that. If you read 2 Kings 9, 30-37, it tells the story. Jehu killing Jezebel and her family members. He did it. He rooted out Baal worship. So, the ending to this conversation is quite disappointing, I'm sure, for Elijah. Just disappointing and humbling. But I think there's a lesson here for us. Um, Maybe, as we think about our service to God and our walk with him, maybe our individual ambitions need to be held a lot more loosely. Maybe we need to sort of relax those and give way to teamwork, delegation of responsibility, and a sort of group orientation. Let's do this together. Maybe we need to allow the Lord to use others or yield to others and let him do the work. And maybe it's on his own timetable later on, not right away. God's teaching his prophets through this. And just to remind you, at the end of all this, he says, "Uh, Elijah, you're not the only one. There are 7,000 who have never worshipped Baal. Which is a beautiful theological truth that the Lord always preserves a remnant by his grace. That's found in Romans 11. And it's true, of course, in the Old Testament.
So, in 1 Kings 18 and 19, Elijah is an example to us of the highs and lows of our Christian life. We should learn to become like Elijah in his boldness, in his confidence, maybe even in his sass. He's a little sassy. Perhaps, like Elijah, you have experienced true joy when you've become God's instrument for a spiritual victory. Maybe you've seen reform or revival in your own life or in the life of your church, the life of your family, and seeing someone come to faith. But you also must know, like Elijah, that a major crash might just follow a major victory. I can tell you personally that crashes, stumblings, defeats, they can come at any time, at any day, any time of the week. This is part of the Christian life in this fallen world. Elijah had a nature just like ours, so we can learn from him. At a very low point in his life, he was thinking too highly of himself and too poorly of those who came before. It seems also maybe he thought that way because he had pushed himself beyond his God-given limits. I am no better than my father's. So you could say in this sermon that we're taking instruction from Elijah's life, but that's not the whole lesson. Actually, the main character in 1 Kings 18 and 19 is the Lord. And we learn some encouraging truths about how the Lord treats his children. First, think about Mount Carmel. The Lord was in the fire. That's so awesome. God stirred up Elijah to do something truly daring and great. And he showed great, great power in that place. But notice, the Lord did not leave or forsake Elijah after Elijah ran for his life from Queen Jezebel. No, God sent an angel. He provided the shade of a tree in the desert. He gave sleep, food, and water. God began to correct Elijah's wrong attitudes gently. The Lord is a great and mighty God, the God of fire, earthquake, and wind. But he can also be so gentle, correcting us with a still, small voice. Brothers and sisters, if you are like me, you, you live your Christian lives by trying hard trying to walk by the Spirit, trying hard to trust the Lord and live consistently moral lives, clean lives. We don't like to sin. We don't like to look sinful, especially in a church setting. We, don't, we want to be clean and moral. This OT story reminds us that we all stumble in many ways, like James says, and the Lord is still there with us to train us in righteousness. So I have to ask you a question. Are you convinced that the Lord loves you even in the very moments when you sin, when you fail, when you definitely have the wrong attitude and feelings about yourself and others? Please cherish, accept, receive this most amazing aspect of God's character. He loves you, as you are, not as you should be. What does Romans 5, 8 say? 
God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait until you became squeaky clean and then loved you. While you were still sinners, Christ died for you. You are loved. Think about this. It's grace if the Lord uses us at all. Think about Elijah. It didn't show up until Mount Sinai, but you can bet that at Mount Carmel, he was having wrong attitudes. He was thinking too highly of himself. He was thinking poorly of others. And yet the Lord used him. Um, He didn't wait till Elijah was squeaky clean to use him. According to the same grace, God gently teaches us and corrects us, even if we want to die because we're not the best. Are you convinced that the Lord is a good father? Let it sink into your soul that he is training you, sanctifying you, and that he regards you with favor and acceptance and an accepting embrace because of Christ. Not because of your efforts, not because of how you compare with others. Accepts you because of Christ. I hope that and I pray that you can leave this Old Testament story worshiping the Lord for his gracious ways toward us. May the name of the Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be lifted up in this church. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, may your name be sanctified in this church. May we experience you in your power and in your gentleness. Please help us tweak our understanding of you so we understand that you are a good Father who loves us in Christ. Thank you for this church, and we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.